Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, each and every one of you listeners who are connecting in to Parkinson's Recovery Radio from some country somewhere in the world. This is your host, Robert Rogers. I'm the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. We provide information, resources, and support to all individuals who currently are diagnosed with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and, of course, their family members and support people. The radio show interviews, and we have 260 radio show interviews that I've aired over the past decade with some truly amazing and remarkable individuals who have some suggestions, ideas, approaches, methods, therapies that are helping individuals one way or another with being able to find relief from whatever symptoms they currently experience. So please, those of you who are listening, this, of course, show is aired live, but we have all of our replays that are available to access 24 hours a day. So please start listening. You're going to find in each of my interviews, you will discover that there is some information conveyed that will be a golden nugget that will enable you to be able to take some action that will, in fact, enable you to find sustained relief or at least temporary relief from, again, whatever symptoms you currently experience. I have an exciting guest today, and what a fascinating program you're about to learn a little bit more about. Lisa Holt is the program director for Canine Detection. Now, you're probably thinking, but wait a minute. I didn't think this particular radio show was about dogs. But guess what? You're going to soon discover that what she does has a profound influence and impact and assistance and support for anybody who currently suspects that they might have the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease that they need to be able to address. So Lisa Holt, thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on the radio show today. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm really happy to be here. Lisa, tell us all about yourself. (laughs) Um, Well, I am a certified dog trainer, and uh, I've been in dog training for approximately 15 years, and I'm also a certified detection trainer, and I have the great privilege of uh, being the program director and uh, training director for PADS for Parkinson's, and PADS stands for Parkinson's Alert Dogs, and we were the first program worldwide to work with dogs to, de- to train them for the uh, detection of an odor associated with Parkinson's disease. And since then, there's been some other programs, um, two that I know of, that have come in, uh, uh, come on, one in UK, and uh, there's a local doctor, I think, in the Seattle area that has trained a couple of her dogs. But other than that, we're really the only nonprofit uh, program in North America doing this, so we're uh, pretty excited. We've gotten some great results with the dogs, and we have 18 dogs on now. Lisa Holpin, why use dogs to detect Parkinson's disease? I know it seems really uh, kind of a, a <laughs> an odd use of dogs, but um, really not at all. Uh, as probably many of the listeners out there are aware, 
in 2015, there was a woman in Scotland who, who was a former nurse that um, was discovered to be able to smell an odor coming from her patients and later her husband uh, with Parkinson's disease. And she was, this was tested and confirmed at uh, the University of Edinburgh. And that news came out uh, across all the Parkinson's community support groups and even the national news in that fall of 2015. And if you think about it, uh, dogs are far superior to the task than people are. They have something like 295 million more odor receptors than we do. And they can actually inhale and exhale at, at the same time. So they can, which is something, I mean, really try that. <laughs> it's not anything that we can do, but they can, they can actually go into continuous deep sniffing. So they don't have to pause for any reason and they can sort odor molecules to the tune of like one in a million. Yeah, yeah. So they are amazing at their ability to do this. So it just makes sense. It just makes sense to use dogs. If a human can do it, certainly a dog can do it. All of the listeners, I am sure, are familiar with tests that have false positives. There's measurement error in any diagnostic assessment. How accurate are the dogs? Well, um, that's a good question. You know, their overall accuracy as a group, and this is an average, and we, we run a trend. We have data that we take every single day that the dogs work. Uh, so their overall accuracy as a group right now is 91% sensitive and 90% specific. And this applies to uh, patients that have been clinically diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and also uh, human control subjects is what they're specific on. So the, uh, the, the interesting thing is that a number of the dogs can be quite higher and some of the dogs can be lower and some of the dogs that are lower are higher in some months, and some of the dogs that are higher are lower in some months. They, they, uh, there is no, there are no dogs that stay at like 98% for a year. They vary back and forth. But so as a group, they are certainly 91% sensitive, which is what we would call our accuracy rating, and 90% specific. And when we talk about specificity, we're talking about the dog's ability to pass up a human control. Um, to not call it positive. How early can the dogs detect Parkinson's? Well, that's a really interesting question, and uh, we we're asked that quite a lot. And and the reality is, is we don't know the answer to that one. We do. We did have a case of the dogs uh, calling one of our control samples hot, and we indicate this, we don't, you know, we, we certainly note it when it happens. And it's very interesting when, um, and, and actually it's fairly rare, that the dogs would call a control sample hot as a group. In other words, if we had 10 dogs run and nine out of 10 of them called it hot. And when I say hot uh, into the detection world, what we're talking about is that the dog indicates that this is a positive. So uh, later on, let's say six months later, we did find out that that person was clinically diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So 
um, one of the things that we hope in the future is that we're going to be able to answer that question, and we are working with scientists to sort of go down that road, but it's going to take us some time. Obviously, if the dogs, you know, uh, the reality is, is we just don't know yet. How can you tell that the dogs are saying that this is a hot sample? Uh, do they act differently? Do they get agitated? What really happens? Oh, that's a great question. Um, okay, so <laughs> no, they don't, get, they don't necessarily get agitated. They all have their own way of communicating. Uh, so that's a, that's a uh, process that we go through in training and teaching them how to develop their own level of communication and how they're going to tell us that something is hot. So some of the dogs will sit. Some the dogs will paw. Some of the dogs, I even have one dog kind of do a little happy dance back and forth on his feet. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, um, they all, we allow them to develop their own level of communication and how they're going to tell us because we don't want to interfere. You know, basically you're going to get what you train. <laughs> Uh, in the training world, and what we you can reduce false positives by um, allowing the dog to tell you themselves. And how that works is for any of you out there that uh, have a dog or have worked with a dog or owned a dog. You know, let's just pretend that your dog wants to go outside to potty, and you're sitting in your chair and you're working on your computer, and your dog, you know, and you ignore your dog. I don't want to be bothered, didn't notice the dog asking. The dog is then going to do something else. They are going to bark. They're going to paw at the door. They're going to nudge you. Uh, They're going to, that's how we develop that form of communication. Are some breeds better than others? Well, there are some breeds that have more odor receptors. But the reality is it comes down to Um, what we would call drive and independence. So we're looking for the dog that uh, (laughs) probably not your classically trained obedience dog. Okay, so we're looking for the dog that, you know, basically can't sit still, wants to, you know, play all the time, wants to chase the ball all the time, you know, uh, is really interested in the outdoors, possibly pulls on the leash, you know, all those kinds of things. So we're looking for drive, and we're also looking for a dog that can work independently of a human. Where do the dogs come from? Well, the dogs, (laughs) uh, we're on San Juan Island, and I realize that many of the listeners out there may not know where that is. It's an island off the northwest coast of Washington. And um, so all of our dogs are locally homed and owned by members of the community. And in this particular community, we have um, the great fortune of having a lot of retirees. And it's also a kind of natural environment here with a lot of beaches and parks and that kind of thing. And a lot of these retirees have dogs. So... Uh, all of our dogs that we work with, you know, I essentially do the training, but they they uh, are brought to work every day by their owner, and they go home with their owners. And we haven't had any problem um, getting enough dogs, which is lucky, very lucky. 
You mentioned the critical role of training. How are the dogs trained? So we use exactly the same method that's used in uh, training for narcotics or accelerants or uh, any controlled substance. And it's, it's, uh, it's very tedious and slow, but it's not, um, there's nothing really difficult about it. Basically what happens is we use a process we call pairing. And that's the same way all detection training is done. So you take what your target odor is and you pair it with something very high value for the dog. Could be a toy, could be food, something that the dog really, uh, really values. And for a period of time, um, those two things are together. So, for instance, if we were working with, uh, um, say we were working with a controlled substance, uh, some sort of drug, then we might have the food and the drug available where the dog is smelling uh, the drug and is also eating the food at the same time, or perhaps they're getting their ball thrown to them or their, their best toy. Eventually what we do is we separate those two things. So then the dog notices the target odor because it's always been associated with something good. And when the dog notices it, then that toy or that food gets thrown into the dog, gets thrown to the dog or, you know, given to the dog. Um, and that's basically how the training is done. What's really different with Parkinson's disease, two things. One is that we don't know the answer. You know, we, <laughs> because Parkinson's is only clinically diagnosed and is subject, as probably many of the listeners know, to um, a fairly high rate of misdiagnosis, or can be, uh, that, um, you know, we can't always go, you know, you're you're right, Daisy, there is cocaine here. We can't. Um, So we don't always absolutely know the answer. So that is a difficulty that we're presented with that's basically not presented in any other form of detection training. The other thing is, is because we use uh, articles of clothing that we train the dogs with that have been worn by people with Parkinson's um, or controlled people, you know, healthy human uh, controls, that uh, the dog is also having to work, th- work through millions, at least thousands, maybe millions of other odorants which are presented in the background. So for that reason, it takes us somewhere around what we've discovered over, this, over these many years now, uh, that it takes about 400 exposures. And that, by that I mean there's 400 times that the dog is going to sniff and get reinforced for uh, finding Parkinson's disease on a shirt before they even begin to notice the odor. So that's really, that's, you know, I would say that that is many, you know, that's that's hundreds of times more than it takes in other kinds of detection training because of the background. So there is difficulty, but the process itself is, um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not brain science. It's, (laughs) it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fairly, it's a fairly routine process. 
Do the dogs go to clinics and sniff people? Uh, no, they will not. Um, and that is not something that we would likely ever do. And so we sort of follow the very similar protocol that's set in cancer detection training. Uh, if you think about it, um, I tell people to think about this as an outsourced lab because basically people send, you know, the samples come to us. They're presented in a very controlled setting and our samples are kept under, under control. And that way the dogs have the best possible scenario to work with in order to determine if their target odor is there. So, and the other part of it is let's, let's keep in mind that we're talking about um, a clinical diagnosis. And so for us, the way that we feel that we can provide the best possible statistics for someone is to use a high number of dogs. So uh, we wouldn't want to take 10 dogs up to a person one by one and have, um, ha have them sniff them. I mean, that's a little um, cumbersome, if you will. And the other thing is the way odor works and what we do know, uh, especially about the odor associated with Parkinson's, is that it tends to um, cling in things like fabrics or plastics. So uh, it's, uh, the odor molecules tend to wrap themselves around in fabric. So if someone had been sitting in a chair that, let's say, had Parkinson's disease, and they got up and moved off to somewhere else in a clinic, and then someone else came along and sat in that chair, the dogs could very highly, you know, would be very likely for the dogs to alert on it on that particular person. So no, we just work in a, in a, a, a very clinical setting um, inside our own facility. <laughs> when you mention a sample then, does a person who wants to get an assessment from you send in a sock or do they clip a bit of hair off of their head? What is a sample? All right. So, um, what we do is we have kits that we send out, and the kit includes a clean, uh, never-worn, uh, freshly washed T-shirt. It also includes a stainless steel canister. So what we do is we ask them to wear the shirt for a period of like three to five nights and then place that um, uh, shirt into the stainless steel canister and send it back to us. So uh, that's the process, and that way we have um, as much as, you know, we can keep as, as clean a sample and as mo uh, a very controlled sample uh, that we present to the dogs. So if a member of the listening audience wants to be able to get an assessment from your dogs, then you send them out uh, the kit. They wear the shirt for somewhere to between four or five or six days. They put the shirt back into the canister and then ship it back to you? Yes, that's the process. But I should caution everybody that because we are working with dogs, you know, we cannot run them like a factory. So one of the things is we're really able to do about 25 of these a year. So what we do is we uh, have an assessment committee who's, who looks at all of these requests, 
and they um, prioritize requests. And it's all done very blind, and, and people are anonymous, anonymously presented in that situation to the committee. So, uh, and this is because there's, there's a lot of reason for it. If when we're doing an assessment, and I think this is difficult for people to get their head around, but when we're doing an assessment, we don't know the answer, okay? We don't know. All we know is that this person doesn't know, you know, that this person doesn't know. They think maybe they have Parkinson's or maybe they don't. They're not sure. So there's nothing for us to go on here. So we cannot reinforce the dogs. We can't say, you know, basically the first eight or nine dogs that uh, um, indicate for us whether that's hot or cold when we're running the assessment, that particular sample, those dogs are not reinforced. In other words, they don't get their toy, they don't get their food. Because you're a lot better off to not reinforce a, a correct behavior than to reinforce an incorrect behavior. So we don't reinforce them. You know, these dogs, <laughs> they work really hard, they try really hard, they want to please, they don't get reinforced. So that means that we then spend the next two to three days recovering those dogs. So they get to run known samples. They get to, you know, until their confidence comes back up. And the other part of it is, is being a detection trainer, I have a keen understanding of how odor works in a room and how dogs can pick up just absolutely the tiniest amount of odor. They're amazing at that. And so if there's just any residual lingering odor in a room, you, you, have the, um, uh, you have the possibility that you could get, uh, you know, a false positive simply because the dog found lingering odor there. And so w when we run an assessment, the room is cleaned. We don't run any other odor in that room for three days prior. So it's a, it's, we do what we would consider to be about as much due diligence as we can possibly do in, this, in these cases. Because we take them seriously. We also don't want, by the way, people to consider the medical diagnosis because it's not a medical diagnosis. It's a piece of information that we can provide to people. This is basically, you know, um, there's a lot of unknowns still about what the dogs are smelling and at, you know, how early is the odor there? Does the odor change over time? Is the odor there sometimes and sometimes not? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. So we, we certainly ask people to take this as one additional piece of information that we can offer. Once a person sends in a sample, it sounds like this is a pretty laborious process. How long does it take to formulate a final decision? Um, if, you know, or you mean if they request a sample or they send a sample? If they send a sample. So they send it in and they're waiting, waiting, waiting eagerly to be able to hear the result. It sounds like it's going to take some time for you to be able to make this happen. Um, once we send a sample, it's pretty quick. But basically, but what happens is we send the kit comes from us, so we don't send the kit out until we're ready to work with that particular individual. It may be a long, it may be a while before 
if someone requests a sample, you know, requests a sample kit, I should say, if someone requests a sample kit, it could, you know, uh, for instance, we probably have um, 50 requests right now, and we'll only be able to do 24 of them this year. So, yeah, it, it could be a while. It could be short, depending on what the assessment committee decides. What is the end goal for the dogs? Well, the end goal, the real end goal, uh, we work with um, on our team, we have the great honor of a man named Dr. Jack Bell, and he's an analytical chemist, and he's a PhD from the University of Washington, and he works at the U University of Washington labs here on the island, and um, also through the University of Washington back in the Seattle area. And our, what we really uh, hope to be able to do is to help science um, determine what that odor actually is. What it, so we're working, one of the things that we do is when the dogs call a sample hot, we also take that, uh, we also attempt as best as we can to get samples, additional samples that we can run through mass spectrometry at the lab. And then we're comparing those to the samples that the dogs call cold. And we're doing this with the, with the hope that we're going to be able to discover um, what it is that the dogs can, what, what it is exactly that the dogs are indicating on, because we don't really know that answer. And then the great thing that we might be able to do is then when the dogs, this goes back to an earlier, earlier question about uh, how early can the dogs detect it, but then what we hope to be able to do is let's say the dogs call someone who's a healthy human control, they call that sample hot. We would then be able to get additional samples from that individual run those through the lab and see, is the, are those odor spikes there? Are those same odor spikes um, showing up on the, on the, on the mass spectrometry uh, kind of data sheet, which actually looks, if you look at one of those, it kind of looks like what the stock market has looked like for the last 20 years. But anyway, it um, <laughs> has like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, right? It, but it's basically just showing you um, – you know, that, that there's odor and odor here, there's odor and odor here, and it's on a, um, a graph, and everybody's graph looks slightly different, but there are some similarities. So what we look for are those similarities. And it may be a way, there's two things that can happen then. There may be a way that we can say, yeah, you know what? That is an early case, because those same odor spikes are there that were showing up in the hot ones. Uh, from the known hots. So that would be hugely valuable. And when, that, when we can do that, then we can use the dogs very efficiently to go upstream. I mean, by, by that I mean we can start to look at, at people who may be in their 20s and 30s, find people that the dogs call hot, identify those people, well, there are big clues there as to what is the cause of Parkinson's once you find those people. And because uh, you can study their lifestyle, you can study 
a lot about them. Plus, there's the great hope then that therapeutic intervention, intervention at that point will drastically slow the progression of the disease. So uh, the great hope, I guess, is that <laughs> with, with canine sniffing and science working together in tandem, there's, uh, we, can, we can reduce the time that it takes to analyze a sample. I mean, the dogs can, dogs can tell you in seconds. So there's, there's a, we believe that, that the dogs can provide great hope to finding a potential cause or, a, or helping to even develop an early detection test kit at some point. How is this marvelous program funded? <laughs> Thank you for asking that one. Uh, we're, we're funded through basically many private donations of just $25 and some foundations and charitable trusts and uh, other nonprofit uh, fundraising organizations. And um, the one thing I can, I can say is that we, we have 18 dogs, we have over 20 to 25 people actually working um, every time we run the dogs, which is four times a week. And uh, we run our program for about $50,000 a year. So we're, and that includes all the research that we do. And, you know, so we are, um, for, for someone who contributes $25 to pads for Parkinson's, you know, that, that's a, a, um, a huge, the money is, is, is really, really goes to training, it goes to research, and it, it's, a, it's a huge dollar stretcher if you're going to give money to Parkinson's disease because the money goes so far for what we do. And you can find out more about us on our website at uh, www.padsforparkinsons.org. And it's PADS, as in Parkinson's Alert Dogs, P-A-D-S, uh, for Parkinson's.org. So P-A-D-S, and when you say four, is that the number four or is that F-O-R? That is F-O-R. So it's padsforparkinsons.org. And we have a contact form on the website, and people can donate through the website. So any questions, um, comments, I'm happy to respond to people. So if they go to the website and they fill out the contact form and send it to me, then um, I will respond to them just as quickly as I can. How much would it cost someone to be able to get an analysis of a sample? It's a completely free service that we provide. We supply um, the kit, uh, everything in the kit, the shipping to, the shipping from. It doesn't cost them anything. And if some of my listeners would like to be able to make contributions to your wonderful program, they can do so with, uh, I suppose, a credit card or PayPal, or what are the systems they can use? They can use um, any, I mean, it's 
it goes through PayPal, but you do not have to have a PayPal account. You can just use any credit card, any major credit card. Um, it, otherwise, you can also, uh, I think our um, mailing information is on the website as well. And if someone wants to mail uh, a donation to us, it's at P.O. Box 2703, Friday Harbor, Washington. And I think you can find that on the website as well. Lisa Holt, we want to thank you on behalf of the many, many thousands of listeners to Parkinson's Recovery Radio for this marvelous contribution to research and also to individuals who are undecided about whether or not they have this particular condition. When people are weeks ahead remembering that they listened to this interview with you today, what would you most like them to remember about you and this program? Uh, I would like them to remember that um, hate Parkinson's love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and people will remember that. That's a wonderful, okay. a wonderful insight. <laughs> that actually came from one of our board members who has Parkinson's disease, and that's what he says. <laughs> what a wonderful response. Well, Lisa Holt, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about your marvelous, inventive program that obviously promises to be able to reveal new insights about all the factors that cause these symptoms and the kind of things that we can do to address them. So on behalf of everybody out there in my audience, thank you so much for your program and for taking the time to be able to tell us all about it. Of course. Thank you for having us on. Have a wonderful day. And you too. And that's what's happening here on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all of the children are profoundly loved. This is your host, Robert Rogers. I am the founder of Parkinson's Recovery. We provide support, information, and resources to persons who currently are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and their family members. More information is at our main website, www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. Thank you so much for being here today. We will be airing another follow-up program in just several days about a new compound that promises to provide some really wonderful relief of symptoms associated with the Parkinson's of, uh, of disease. It's called C60, and we're going to all learn more about it in the coming days. Thank you so much for being here and for being a participator in Parkinson's recovery programs. <laughs>